Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome everybody to episode seven of the Great Birth Rebellion. My goodness, do we have a treat for you if we could have even peaked after last week's episode. But B, I've also got some amazing news. I got a text message yesterday from a friend saying, oh my gosh, congratulations for being in the paper. And I was like, what? We're in the paper? She's like, yeah. The Daily Telegraph has listed the Great Birth Rebellion as number nine in the top 10 new podcasts. So uh, thank you to all our listeners. You are legends. We love you. We adore you. This is really cool. I can't wait to see where we go. All right. Let's get to Hazel. You are, we just want you to talk now because you're very excited. Oh, no. I'm going to mute myself. I haven't even said, I haven't even said Hazel's here yet, B. (laughs) No, I just, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Hazel, oh, okay. I don't. I don't even know Hazel. What are you talking about? Well, okay, I went to all this effort to get a very special guest, and B's just like taking the lid off the box, and out pops Hazel. She's popped out, but popped out of a vulva cake with all your epicness. She's <laughs> laughing. Okay. She's just muted, so you can't hear how how awesomely. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to introduce our amazing special guest who B just let out of the bag. So we are going to talk about birth after cesarean today. And I've got Australia's biggest expert in this because Hazel, <laughs> she's laughing again. Hazel, I know Hazel well, and I'm going to introduce her a little bit based on what I know about Hazel. And then Hazel, you'll need to fill in the gaps for me, but let me see. So Hazel Keetle, currently Dr. Hazel Keetle, because she's got a PhD, works at Western Sydney University as a lecturer and researcher, has five children. Is that correct? Yes. Woman who herself has had a VBAC, also has a history as a midwife in lots of different settings, rural, including home birth, home birth midwife, lives in the beautiful Blue Mountains, has just written a book called Birth After Caesarean, uh, likes gluten-free, well, has to eat gluten-free food. Hazel, did I leave anything out? No, that's pretty good. So three of my kids are bonus children. And so I had two, the two babies um, who are no longer babies. One is 15 today, it's his birthday, and the other is nearly 14. Yeah, and we just have those two at home now because the other three have all flown the nest. Magic. And I could not recall the name of your PhD thesis today when I was... Oh, what was the name of it? (laughs) 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 Women's Experiences of Planning a VBAC in Australia. Right. Amazing. And that's what we're going to talk about today is birth after a birth after cesarean. And before we start, I need everybody listening to listen very, very carefully because it you two B, she's just shuffled up close to the screen. I'm putting my only good ear that works because my other one's deaf. Okay, yeah. go. Listen up, B. Okay. I went to Hazel's book launch last night and I bought two copies of Hazel's book, Birth After Caesarean. One's for me and for my library, for my clients. The other one is for the listeners. And what I'm going to do is for those who are on the mailing list, and if you're listening to this on the day that the episode lands on a Monday, I'm going to send the the mail out, out a bit later today so that everyone has a chance. So listen to it. Then... I'm going to send out the mailing, the, the email to the mailing list, and it's going to have a question on there. The person who emails me back with the answer first gets a copy of Hazel's book, Birth After Caesarean, and I will personally post it out to you. So that's my challenge to you, listeners. If I'm sorry if you've been listening and you're listening to episode seven, you know, in 2044, you've missed out. Anyway, let's. I want to hear hey. all about Birth After Caesarean. Let's go. <laughs> Sorry. I have a question, but I know Mel's got a plan. Mel's always got a plan. So you go for it, Mel, and then I'll chime in when I when it's the least appropriate and ask my question. And I particularly love how 
Hazel's the guest and we're yet to give her an opportunity to talk. All right, we are going to head into our questions. And the reason we position this podcast so close to the beginning, I suppose, is that one of the big things that's super important for women who are planning their next birth after cesarean is is if you get to 37 weeks and realised you haven't considered something and that maybe you're in a position where you haven't got the best team behind you, it can sometimes be too late to find the right people to be with you to really achieve your goals. We want to encourage women that if you have had a previous cesarean section and you really want to change things for the next time, the time to start doing your planning and thinking is before you get pregnant with the next baby. So that's why we've kind of positioned it soon is we would love to make sure women have that information before they get pregnant. So here we go. Hazel, I'm just going to launch in with these questions. If I was a woman and I had had one, two or three cesareans before, why should I consider planning a vaginal birth for my next baby if I've had previous cesarean sections? Well, what we do know from my PhD research is that women actually want the option to have a vaginal birth and vaginal birth is important to women. But it's often downplayed. It's often, especially once you've had a cesarean, you have that age-old incorrect belief that once a cesarean, always a cesarean, and you don't even know that it is an option. But then women that are wanting to plan a VBAC, they're doing it for a range of different reasons. There is the actual desire to have a vaginal birth, but there's also practical reasons because a cesarean is major abdominal surgery. And at this point, they've got at least one other child to look after as well as a baby coming along and yeah women we're smart we know that if we've had another cesarean that's going to limit how much we can pick up our children how much driving around we can do in that first six weeks and how difficult it will make it to be caring for a newborn plus your other children as well and so often women are choosing to have a vaginal birth after cesarean because they want a better healing time they want to be up earlier and they but and they really actually want a better birthing experience as much as some people say that women don't want to have vaginal births that's not what we've found and that's not what we found in our recent survey either it's actually that over nearly 80 percent of women actually find said that a vaginal birth was either very or strongly um, important to them Mm. And the recent Australian Women's and Babies report showed that only 12% of women are actually having vaginal births after a previous cesarean section in Australia. Yeah, VBAC is in the minority. So when women have had a previous cesarean and the, uh, those, those stats are population data, so it's looking at all the women in that year that had a previous cesarean and then what type of birth did they have. And so, yes, we, we sit around 11 to 12% of women who've had a previous, uh, who have a vaginal birth after cesarean. There's then usually a couple of percent of women who have an instrumental birth and then the rest are um, cesareans. They don't tell you in those stats how many planned to have a VBAC and had a repeat cesarean, but most definitely, you know, the, the, the actual group of women that have a vaginal birth after cesarean is quite small. And that's only for one a VBAC after one cesarean. If we start looking at VBAC after multiple cesareans, then that number drops um, another 10%. Mm. And I've read a study recently by Cox in 2015, about, which was about VBACs at home, And the percentage of women who were able to have a vaginal birth after cesarean at home was heaps higher. I can't remember the exact stat. I don't know if you know that off the top of your head. Um, So we do know that there are some things that increase the feedback rates. So first of all, just to get the numbers correct, and I've just done a session with my students actually about about feedback and we, we broke this apart as well, is that with our population data, we only know the mode of birth that happened. We don't know what the planned group was. And so in that group of women who had a repeat cesarean, there will be some women that planned a VBAC but had a repeat cesarean. And I'm very careful about language. I write about that in the book. I won't use the term success or failed or trial of scar or trial of labour because we're not in the court and women are not criminals. But they either had, they planned something and had it or they planned something else and had something else. We just don't, I don't use the emotive language. So it's difficult from the population stats to know how many of those planned a VBAC and had a VBAC. And yet when we then look at numbers such as the one from 
from Cox is what we're looking at is we're looking at a large, we're looking at a group of participants or, or, or subjects that actually we knew what they planned to begin with. So then you actually end up with two cohorts. You have the group that are planning a VBAC, and then you have a group that are planning an elective cesarean. And then where they get that higher statistic from is then from that group that are planning a VBAC, they then look at how many of them had the VBAC and how many of them had a repeat cesarean. And so that's where we'll get the general percentage that without impact of model of care or place of birth, about 60 to 70% of women who plan a VBAC will have a VBAC. And about 40 to 30 to 40 percent will have a repeat emergency cesarean. Which is in line with current statistics of a person having their first baby, right? So we've got around in Australia, roughly one in three women will have a, a cesarean and two thirds will have a vaginal birth. So that's a, a person having their first baby. So it's kind of always from the from the data I've looked at being very similar to yeah. that. Absolutely. So then in the study you mentioned, they look at out-of-hospital birth or, or home birth, and that's where we then get a higher than the norm. So if we say the norm is maybe about 60%, obviously it varies by different studies. Then if you add in there a different model of care or an out-of-hospital out of setting, then that goes up to 80% plus. So it does show to you that it doesn't, if women are not women are not changing. Um, I mean, there's some slight demographic ish, uh, differences, but actually the model of care and the place of birth has a bigger impact on VBAC rates. So then what we see then is so approximately 12, 12% of women here in Australia are having vaginal births after cesarean section, but we're not really sure about what their preference was at the time. Of a co- yeah, and of a cohort of women who intended on having a vaginal birth after cesarean in hospital, approximately 60 to 70% of women will do that. And then if you go to the next sort of tier up where you've got a woman who's chosen to have um, potentially a home birth or in a midwifery model of care in a bit more of a, I don't want to call it boutique, but, you know, very specialised kind of model of care, that rate of vaginal birth after cesarean could go up from 80% upwards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so even in that population data with that 12%, that could still have been about 60 or 70% of women had chosen that. We just don't know that because we just don't ask that question or measure or measure that question. And, you know, I said, you know, what questions do you have? And some of the students said, well, our hospital says they've got like a 70% VBAC rate. And I said, well, you can get that out of 10 women. So, you know, they they actually may own that that doesn't mean that it's particularly great if they're only offering it for 10 women and 300 are having are not being given the option and are having repeat cesareans. That might just be the really 10 determined difficult women <laughs> who are saying, I'm gonna have a VBAC regardless, and seven of them had one. So, you know, I was trying to break down on what that means and and uh, how to how to understand that in their own hospitals too. Yes, and historically women were told once you've had a cesarean, you need to have a cesarean for all of your next babies. But that's not true. No, that was based on when cesareans were big zipper cesareans. You know, like they weren't the transverse, you know, they were the longitudinal straight down the middle and, and, you know, a large proportion of the uterus was cut to be able to get the baby out. But nearly like a, I mean, I, I wrote about all this in my PhD in the history section. You know, it was, it was a really long time ago that they actually introduced transverse scars and from that or transverse cuts. And from then onwards, that saying of once this is there and once this is there and should have been thrown out with the dinosaurs, but it stayed around. And unfortunately, women, it, women may even be told after their first cesarean that you know, not to have a VBAC or not not have a real understanding of why they had a cesarean. And then they leave the maternity system and they're out in the community. And this is kind of some of the information that they then get given. And just to, so just to clarify, just in case people don't understand, what Hazel's talking about that in terms of transverse cut is, is what the majority of people having a cesarean section today have. It's that cut from hip, you know, in terms of 
from side to side so it's not from your hip to your hip but it's going um transverse so sideways across the body near the bikini line whereas what used to be done a long long time ago and it um was cutting up and down so basically from the ribs to the pubic bone not as big but in that direction so vertically down your body there's there's a lot of variety even between that so um if people are unsure there's a great group called special scars special hope and they're actually set up they're a group of of women um, who've actually all got something a little bit different about their scars. So sometimes it can be an extension, it can be a J, it can be an inverted T, it can be a previous uterine rupture. So there can be lots of different uh, ones. They've got a whole list on their website and then they actually have a um, Facebook group as well. And I mentioned them in the book because they've been amazing supporters to me in the past. Um, and What are um, they called again? Special Scars, Special Hope. Oh, that's awesome. I've never heard of them. That's amazing. They collect data or they don't collect data, but they they look at the research that's out there and they support each other. And they have like a closed group as well for women who actually have that information to have that history to support each other as well. Yeah, epic. Um, Mel was saying yesterday at your book launch, you were talking a lot around gathering the right team for your birth, which is, and you use the um, analogy of like an Olympic team. And I'd love you to explain that. And, and I, you know, gave the analogy, which I often give around doulas um, with Mount Everest I was like, okay, so you're at the bottom of Mount Everest and you're telling me that you really want to climb it and you really want to get to the peak and your partner is there and you want to take him with you because he really cares about you and he really supports you and he, he says he wants to be there but you get there and he's saying let's get on the helicopter let's get that helicopter let's get on that helicopter right now and my my analogy of a doula is always like a sherpa you know the sherpa knows how to navigate mount everest a doula knows how to navigate birth and the sherpa is saying no we can do this i can get you you know i can get you on that journey that you want and help you you know try and reach the peak and i i can see how people might be triggered by the, some of the language i've used in that so apologies if you are but can you explain the birth team analogy that you were talking about at the book launch yesterday because i think it's yeah epic. yeah so the big thing that came out of my phd was that there were four factors that impact how women feel after after having a birth after cesarean regardless of what type of birth it was and they they are control confidence relationship and active labor and so when I write about relationship that's about the team that you have around you your healthcare providers so in that chapter I kind of start off with when I was writing it and it was during the Tokyo Olympics and I was really inspired by you know obviously all the stuff that was going on about it um, especially in the Paralympics, which I really love watching. And it made me think, you know, these, these athletes that train so hard to get to the, the result of hopefully winning a gold or a silver or a bronze or, you know, just beating their personal best, they have a very carefully selected team around them. You know, they have that coach that, you know, and you see that relationship with the coach. And so they have this amazing team. They have they have people that care for their physical health, that care for their nutritional health. Then they have this coach that is almost like that project manager and, keep, and keeps a tab of everything and, and really believes in them. And then they, they go through it. And sometimes the coach takes the spotlight in that particular case. But most of the time, the coach is sitting back and enjoying the fact that their athlete got to do what they really want to do and supported them in that way. And yet they might only do that, um, like the big Olympic races, they might only do that a few times in their lifetime. And women generally in our country, we generally do that a few times in our lifetime, but we do not invest as much in our team for something that we will remember forever and we will remember how we were treated forever in the same way that we would do in Olympic sports. Um, and sport is important, that's true, but once they finish being an athlete, they, they go on to something else. When you finish having a birth, you go on to be a mother. Like, that's a really important role to do, and it's something that we should really be investing that we've got women in the best possible place to be. So then I kind of challenge women and I say, well, what kind of coach do you want? Do you want the coach that, you know, when you interview, say you're interviewing for coaches and you want to do that 100-meter sprint, and that's when you want to get gold. And then the coach says, well, yeah, you could do that. But I think you probably have a heart attack halfway through. Like, I think you're just going to drop dead. Like, everyone's going to die. Like, what is the point of doing that? Well, if you don't die, then, you know, you're going to break your leg on the way. and You're not going to be able to walk any better. And, and what's even the point? What are you going to get from it? What is the value of even doing that race? 
like, why don't we just watch it on the TV? It'd be much safer for you. Just be a bystander. You don't need to take part. Like, how are you going to feel at that point? Your hope and your dream is that you're going to get to that race or to have a vaginal birth. And this person saying that you're just going to die. And what's the point of doing it? Or would you go for a coach that goes, I believe in you. Like, I believe in you and I will do everything I can to support you. I'll get the other team around. Let's do this together. And I know that you can do that. And I see you at the end. And whether that's on the gold or the silver or the bronze or beating your personal best, you are going to feel amazing. And I'm going to do everything I can to support you to get there. And you will feel amazing regardless what happens. And I'm going to support you. Like that's who you would go for. Yet in maternity care right now, and certainly in the BBAC survey, 50% of women in the standard care received hurtful comments during their pregnancy. And those hurtful comments ranged from not believing in the value of vaginal birth, so not believing in the value of the race, why don't you just watch it on TV rather than taking part, why don't you have an elective cesarean rather than planning a VBAC, so they're not even believing in the value of it all the way through to threats of death to themselves or to their baby. So your baby will die if you plan this. Or the worst, one of the most hurtful quotes that I that I read in the survey was a woman being told, if you plan a feedback, your husband will end up with a dead wife and a dead and a dead baby and a toddler to raise on his own. That is coercion to the extreme. But women get that. 50% of women receive those hurtful comments of the variety that that is there. So why would you choose to go with that person? Or why would you go, yeah, I'm going to choose that person who threatens everything and doesn't believe in anything I go for? So I, that's kind of where I get the analogy from. It's like, why would you, you want to choose the best team around you? And certainly from the from the research that we've done, that is constitutive care with the midwife and then everyone else. And that would certainly include a doula. So firstly, Hazel, I mean, I just want to send love to anyone that's ever had anything spoken to them ever that wasn't anything but supportive because if this is you listening to this and this is bringing up lots I just want to send you love secondly I love all that you're saying and it applies to all births not just vaginal or birth after cesarean um it really does and it's what you know Mel and I bang on about all the time thirdly I always say to people you will never ever regret investing in yours and your child's health and I often throw questions about it you know how much did you pay for your car how much did you pay for your wedding you know to really put it in perspective of of money for um, a care provider that's right for you d I think that's what we're up to I just want to acknowledge that not a lot of people get choice in Australia. And that is a huge, huge barrier to everything in maternity care services. I've worked a lot. And I know you have two Hazel in rural and remote areas. Um, and there's, you know, even in, even in the cities, like the amount of women that say, I tried to get onto the midwifery program and I couldn't, or they wouldn't accept VBACs or they have a VBAC. You know, I spoke to a woman the other day and she said, yeah, they have a VBAC clinic. And I was like, great. What does that entail? Has that got continuity of care? No didn't have anything it just meant you had to see this you know it actually meant more doctor's appointments that's what it meant um so i just really want to acknowledge that a lot of you listening to this won't have choice so this you know looking at what else you can do if you are having publicly funded care and the person that is you know your coach keeps changing at every appointment yeah. and one time your coach is really supportive and the next time the coach is telling you that you're going to die if you have it because that's a reality right a lot of yeah. women in australia get fragmented care it's really hard in in health because it's whilst we have guidelines and we have policies people bring their experience and their opinion into care which is how we end up with coercive care and so then it's not this everybody does this and everybody does that it's very what with the care and opinions and evidence that you may receive in one hospital can be very different to another based on the person giving them to you so in terms of recruiting a team, I mean, my biggest thing here, you know, if you're birthing in a system and you haven't got continuity, the best way to do that is with a doula. Um, yeah, like so- it, it, it is very challenging because, you know, we we then look at women that, that have the resources, you know, because they're able to do that. And so if they're able to um, either have a private midwife in their area and then to be able to afford that um, or to be able to find a doula and then to be able to afford that. Unfortunately, we don't have very many community programs where, where doulas are provided. And But we do have a growing midwifery group practice uh, and we're seeing that in the models of care that, you know, 
maybe about 30% of women are able to access that now. And it is growing, but it is important for our hospitals to, to keep that growing. So if it's getting to a point where you pee in a stick, you get a positive test and you have to book your MGP midwife or it's too late, then all that shows is that you need to grow that. You need to have more midwives there. And certainly if they don't act, if they don't offer feedback, then I just think that's nuts. Like I, I don't understand that. Because women who are planning in VBAC just want to have a physiological birth. And the professionals who understand physiological birth and supporting women through labour are midwives. Doulas, absolutely on the side. But as healthcare professionals, that is midwives. That's what midwives are trained to do. I'm an educator. This is what we do at university. Yes, they understand all the complex stuff too. They understand when things aren't going towards a physiological birth or need more assistance or need collaboration. But these are the experts. And so to think to even exclude that from a constitutive care program, I just think is nuts. Like I challenge people. It is, but I if you're pregnant them. right now and you're wanting a VBAC, you know, the, I think like what I love to do is give practical tips for now. And so often they've got barely anything at their fingertips like you and I know yes of course that's that's what all women all women should have access to midwifery continuity of care there's enough research that supports it in all areas from the amount that it costs to the benefits for mum and babe so yes obviously continuity of midwifery care but the reality is many women aren't getting access to it so what can they do to assemble well I think first of all see what is in your area and and ask around and ring up your local hospital and say what models of care do you have for me because often they're they're there and maybe they've not been advertised to you maybe your GP doesn't know about them so first of all ask like ring them and say do you have a constitutive care model if you don't then ask do you have a student model so we have all of our students in Australia our midwifery students have to follow through 10 women all the way from their appointments on being there for their labour and birth and postnatal. And some students, some universities encourage the students to find out people on social media. So you might see adverts, but others only recruit through hospitals. And so they might say, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. We have students here. We've got a student who's who's looking. And believe me, our students, they really want to follow through VBACs. They love supporting women planning a VBAC. And like I said, today we did a whole session on VBAC. They know exactly what to do and how to support you. So that's another way. And certainly in this survey that I'm working on now, the Birth Experience Survey, we've asked, uh, we've seen comments about the benefit of having a student midwife. So right now that could be a practical thing to do if you've got enough time for them to see you four times, um, which really, you know, you, you're going to be having weekly appointments anyway towards the end. So you, that could that could be you in a month out of labour and birth. Can you find a student to support you? And that's someone else that you will get to know and has some, has knowledge and growing knowledge through their course about supporting women. And then another factor is, yeah, are there doulas in, the, in your area? Are there doulas that are attached to particular programs? Are there student doulas out there if you're looking for, if you have limited resources? So there are other ways that you can look at, you know, what what how could continuity look for you? There are some women that actually really enjoy continuity of care with their doctor. And what you, I guess what you have to be aware of is any bits of baiting and switching that they might be really pro to begin with and maybe a little bit unsure at the end. But certainly there are some amazing doctors out there as well that provide continuity of care. So I wouldn't want, if a woman's got a fantastic obstetrician and is really happy with them to hear this and go, oh my God, I must just dump them and go and find someone else. Like, but, but have an honest conversation, you know, because every relationship with your healthcare provider, your doula, whatever, it should be on a level playing field. And that means that you feel open to be able to say, how are you going to support me to have this feedback? And these are the things that are really important to me. So how will you support me to do that? And if you don't feel comfortable to have that conversation, then you don't have an equal relationship with that healthcare provider. Break that down. If you love your doctor, you have a really good relationship with them, well, start asking them hard questions and start asking them how they're going to best support you. Hmm. So I'm hearing yeah. like the moral of the story then with the you know, with our Mount Everest analogy and Olympic analogy and gathering your team. But the idea is if you're planning to have really any birth after a previous cesarean section, 
does require a team that's on board with the woman's plan, even if that's to have an intended repeat cesarean section. So even if that is the plan to have a repeat cesarean section, the idea is to choose the people who are going to get you to the place you wanted to go, not where they think you should go. And so I guess the big message here for women who have had a previous cesarean section is really heavily explore and discuss this with potential care providers or your current care providers. And then if you've found yourself in a situation where you've got a care provider who you feel might not be completely on board with your plan, you could do a little bit of a rescue mission, I suppose, and try and sort of plug gaps with other people in your team like a doula, like tap into the sisterhood of other women who have had vaginal births after cesarean section because there's a massive knowledge base of, for women who have done it themselves who can actually go in as a hero for you in a time of vulnerability and to bolster you and give you that pep talk, you know, at the finish line of like, we're going to keep going, we can do this even if there's adversity. So peer yeah, support was something that definitely came up mm. as as important and we do have some amazing uh, one of the benefits, I guess, we've got social media is that it doesn't have to be people in your local community. You can catch up with people all over the place. We've got in Australia, the, you know, the Feedback Australia Facebook page has got thousands of women on there, which means that any time of the day or night that you've got a concern, there's probably somebody feeding their baby and looking at their at their social media. So, you know, you can reach out and you get that support straight away and they and women stay on that. There's a real ripple effect of, of feedback that we can talk about later, but one of that ripple effect is they want to support other women. And if that's even being on those on those support groups to provide that for women going through, it's a really vital part. I just want to say too, around you choosing your care provider and having those conversations, one of the things that I get a lot of people to ask themselves is, do you feel intimidated by your care provider? Or do you feel so soft and mushy that you could ask them anything? And so that's really a, a really take that away with you and go, do I feel intimidated by them? Because if you can't ask them the hard questions and you feel vulnerable around them just in your pregnancy care, how are you going to feel in what is one of your most vulnerable states, which is labour and birth? You know, if you can't speak up for yourself in pregnancy, you are not going to be able to speak up for yourself in labour and birth. The essence of all of this continuity is that it's relationship-based care. But I do also want to step in for those that maybe didn't have a great relationship. So maybe they did find someone that was going to be their doula or someone's going to be their private midwife or MGP or, or doctor. And they then felt that they just didn't click. They just didn't have that relationship. And it's actually okay for that to happen. That doesn't mean that it wouldn't then move, you know, still carry on and there'll be great support for you. And maybe it's just not that, you know, kind of soft feeling, but it's relationship-based care. And we know certainly when we go dating, right, like they might sound great online and then when you meet them, there's just no chemistry, so you don't really bother. But it's 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 not the same kind of chemistry you're looking for, absolutely, but you still, you might not click with that person or they may there may be a problem in that relationship later on. So don't feel at fault if when that can happen because the basis of this is relationship-based care and relationships have got to be two-way. There's got to be respect both ways from both from the woman and also from the healthcare provider and give and take. And sometimes you could be let down by that person in, in relationship-based care. So Hazel, my next question is, I've decided I want to plan a vaginal birth. My previous birth, I've, I had a cesarean section. I've just discovered I've, I'm pregnant. So what do I do now? Well, I think first of all, look at, well, every woman will have a bit of a plant growing in the back of their head that happened after the previous cesarean. So what were you told straight after that cesarean? Were you told at the time that never have a, another vaginal birth or you can have a VBAC? from the doctor's team or from the supposed debriefing, that has actually planted a little seed in there. And what you don't realise is that's actually been growing the whole time. 
So these kind of decisions don't happen when you get that pregnancy test. It's actually been growing the whole time. So kind of being aware of what's in your mind, what's in your head, and then grow your knowledge around that so that you can discern whether that little plant that's been growing, is that a weed or is it a really beautiful plant that you want to keep going? And knowledge is power. So you then need to really go on that journey of where are you going to get that knowledge from? It can be from a peer support group. It can be from books. It can be from reading research articles. It's whatever you like to get that information from. Because that what I have found in, in the in the research is that that knowledge that women get is really important, but it actually is also a challenging journey because what it can do is it can highlight all the things that went not to plan last time. So a really important part of of this journey is recognizing that women are coming from a place of trauma. So we know about birth trauma in the general population of women who've had a previous birth. It's about one third of women. But in my VBAC survey, what we found is that was doubled. So two thirds of women who'd had a previous cesarean found that a traumatic experience. And I think if we really understand that women are then coming from a place of trauma, that means they need support. And sometimes that trauma has gone all the way through to a diagnosis of postnatal depression or anxiety or PTSD. And then we throw women back into another pregnancy to do it all over again. So that trauma really needs to be explored. And so whether that's you've had a chat with someone who is who is experienced in understanding traumatic birth and help you unpack that, or whether that's with your care provider, it's something that will need to be done at some point. What happened last time? Really review what happened last time with someone who, that you, who you trust, who can then see if there is some of your behaviours or thought patterns that could impact it. Because if you don't unpack what happened last time, it will come up. And when you don't want it to come up is when you're in labour, because then it will just be sending out the wrong hormones. As you all know, like we want that oxytocin-rich environment when you're in labor but if you're getting triggered or if you're getting flashbacks of what happened last time that is not an oxytocin rich environment you're just going to start disrupting that hormonal cycle and then potentially there could be problems with your labor so wherever you've had trauma it will come out and it's better to unpack that debrief that during your pregnancy and also then kind of plan what is it that you want to happen this time and be and be aware of that and then choose the best place and people to support you on that journey mm. and you've just I just want to go back because we mentioned it at the start talking about place of birth but I think a lot of people don't realize that there may be more options available to them than they're aware of in terms of where people planning a vaginal birth after cesarean can birth so do you just want to talk about that a little bit more in depth well, my first study I ever did before my PhD was a master's on exploring women's experiences of planning a VBAC at home. And I came from a background of planning a VBAC at home, although I transferred into hospital. And I also I also was a, was a private practicing midwife supporting women. So I kind of wanted to know what was going on with women who were planning a VBAC at home. And I found a few things out. And what I did find is that women didn't always plan a VBAC at home at the beginning it wasn't always like I'm definitely going to have have a home birth it was a journey of being often being pushed out so women would go to a hospital and say look I've had this previous traumatic birth I don't want a CTG I don't want this I don't want that they all I know about the cascade of intervention this ended up in my previous birth experience can I negotiate this can I negotiate monitoring can I negotiate being active can I negotiate access to water and then because of the impact of policies and maybe healthcare providers that aren't being so supportive, they'll say, no, this is what we do. You do it our way or you, do, you go away. It's our way or the highway. And that actually turned women into, backed them into a bit of a corner and helped and made them really look at what is out there. And because we have access to, to social media these days, you're actually able to explore and maybe they found a private midwife's phone number and I am sure Mel has had many of these phone calls like I have and then they pick up the phone and they speak to a private midwife and they say they share everything in that first phone call and then say could I do this at home would you support me and the midwife says yeah that sounds great I think you can have a great home birth and, and I'd be willing to support you and that could have been the first yes they'd got on that journey 
because all that I heard before was no, 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 no. And then they get a yes. And then actually what they do find is someone who's really, really supportive. So that's kind of what I explored. What does the evidence say about VBAC at home? Well, it's kind of variable. We do know that VBAC at home has, has higher VBAC rates. Even if they then transfer to hospital with the midwife, they still have higher VBAC rate. But things can happen with uh, with a VBAC. And obviously the biggest risk is you try and rupture. It is extremely rare, about 0.22% chance of it happening. And even if it happens, it doesn't mean that it's going to end in, in the death of the baby or the mother. It can. But usually 10% of babies that happens to 90% of babies could even survive that. But what helps along that survival is getting to hospital and being able to be to, to have emergency treatment. And so where there isn't good collaboration and good pathways in and delays, then that could be an issue. And certainly in a study from the US, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, there were slightly higher rates of neonatal issues or issues with the baby. And when they looked at that, it looked like it was because there wasn't a very good transfer. There was like delays. There, there wasn't good communication between midwives and the hospitals. So I think if we, if we look at that seamless transfer, make it better, then potentially there could be less issues. But on the whole, it's very rare for any for that to happen in the first place. Obviously, when it does, especially if it's at home, it gets media attention, it gets out there and people get very nervous. But I will add, our private practicing midwives have to, have to do the highest amount of training, the highest amount of continual professional education out of all of the of nursing and midwifery that is out there. They have emergency equipment with them. And we do also know then that women birthing at home planning and feedback, have a higher transfer rate to hospital. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think what it shows is that midwives are being vigilant and aware and transferring early if needed, but they still have higher VBAC rates. Hmm. And that's the interesting thing. And so even for women who are not planning a home birth, just by hiring a privately practicing midwife, you actually can get those, you know, those the beneficial stats of above 80% possibility of having a vaginal birth, regardless of if you're at home or if you're at hospital, if your care provider is a privately practicing midwife. And that stat that you mentioned, 0.22%, is 22 women per 10,000. So that's the stat. 22 women per 10,000 births will experience a uterine rupture in labour with their next baby after a previous Yeah, I mean, the stats vary. Obviously, every study will come out with a different one, um, but it varies around, but it's generally below that 1%. Then what's really important is, well, what happens with that? And certainly I write about that in the book and I break it all down to actually what, what occurs even if a uterine rupture does happen because it's often given as a coercive tactic that if you do this and have your time rupture this will happen to you and it seems very fatalistic it's the worst outcomes that can happen but actually when you we have one study the Inos study that looked at a multi-center uh, multi-country across Europe and looked at around seven seven hundred uterine ruptures that occurred there's 800 in total but 750 or something from previous cesarean looked at their outcomes uh, and that was a really interesting study because we hadn't had something that looked at so many because it's so rare mm. to actually look at the outcomes of the uterine rupture and I go into that in the book for women to to really demystify it because uterine rupture is talked about all the time as the as the biggest issue but what is not talked about are the risks of multiple cesareans which are just as significant. Okay so what I'm hearing then is that women who are planning uh, their next birth after cesarean section really need to be selective about their care team and just agreeing to or accepting standard care is less likely to land them where they want to be at the end with their ideal birth scenario. So being really conscious with selecting a care team, it seems as though from research and women's experience and what you're learning, Hazel, is that the best bet is privately practicing midwives in terms of a vaginal birth, if that's what you're aiming for? I would say continued care with a midwife. I won't go all the way to private practicing midwifery, right. which has a lot of amazing benefits, but only because there is that in cost with it. So I would say continued care with a midwife. 
Continue. I love that. Thank you. So continuity of care with a midwife. So that means having your own midwife, either one that you, that's allocated from a hospital in a continuity of care midwifery program, one that you've specifically chosen. Basically, if you have midwifery care, you're going to increase your chances of getting the type of birth you want. Then obviously you need to grill that person in particular about how they feel about VBAC. And then that will tell you what kind of coach you've got. And I have worked for and seen, or not worked for, worked with and seen obstetricians who are incredibly supportive of VBAC. You know, talk, I think it's a great tip, Hazel, talking to other women who have done it because often women have already explored every pathway and can tell you the ones with the greatest success. Basically, the widest pathway is the easiest to travel to get to the journey where you want to go. So step one, choose a great care team. The next thing I want to ask about Hazel is there seems to be a lot of fear language about planning a vaginal birth after having had a cesarean section. Can you talk to us about what the risks of vaginal birth after cesarean are? And then we also do want to talk about the benefits. So let's first talk about what care providers are concerned about with vaginal birth after cesarean and things that can be done to kind of mitigate the risks of feedback. So most women are well aware of the term uterine rupture because it gets used and they're told about it all the time. I will add they're often not told about the risks of multiple cesareans. And I do go into that in the book. I've got a little table in the book that looks at what the what the outcomes are and, and what the risks are for each one. So certainly you can go into that. And I've also broken down really what the biggest study that we've had out there, which was looking across Europe with two and a half million women and then only the 800 from that who had a uterine rupture and then another about 100 drop who actually had a previous cesarean. So also uterine rupture doesn't always happen for women who've had a previous cesarean. It can be for other things like having, having, having had lots of babies or maybe trauma, like direct physical trauma type of thing can ha- can happen to can occur with a uterine rupture but so then there was about 750 of them that had a uterine rupture after having a previous cesarean and then I break I really break down the book what actually happened because uterine rupture doesn't isn't a full stop like it doesn't mean it just ends there like what happens what were the outcomes of um, uterine rupture both on the mothers um, and on the babies and so I break that down uh, in the book to really give women an understanding of first of all what is uterine rupture what does that mean and I go you know into all that detail what, what actually happens at that time but then I go into what are the what are the rates what are the numbers what are the outcomes and then even what are your options if you've had a uterine rupture so the one other thing I love I love doing in my book was I actually reached out to women and asked them to share stories that I would put in the book and I wanted it to be they planned to be back but they had something different about them so I I, yeah I reached out I had 15 women across four different countries who shared their stories and one of those stories is about a VBAC after uterine rupture so there's even that story in there to really give an idea that life does happen after uterine rupture and even birth can happen after that so often it's used especially in a coercive care that uterine rupture that's it that's the end of everything and 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 everything around you will just stop but actually life still goes on after that and what what does that look like so that was a really important part to put in the in the book too can I ask Hazel, can we break down uterine rupture a little bit? Because it's sometimes sold to women as you either don't have a uterine rupture or you have a complete uterine rupture. But there are stages. It's a spe- yeah, there are. So there's there's um, partial or complete. And the partial ones are a little bit tricky. So in previous research, in older research, they would put partial and complete together, and so which would kind of bump up the uterine rupture rate. But a partial one is, and I'm not a surgeon, I'm not an obstetrician, so this is me reading this uh, as a researcher. A partial uterine rupture is where there's maybe an opening across the scar, so it, but it may have also healed that way. So our bodies are really quite strange plus amazing. And sometimes when a wound heals on the inside, it might actually leave a little bit of a window, but that's not a the problem it's just the way it has and then when you go to the have a cesarean they open up and you see they see that that potentially could have been classed as a 
partially showing rupture, but actually wasn't leading to one. It's just it's, it's, it has really thinned out and looks like it's going to. So partials are that kind of it's starting to open. We don't know if it was going to open the whole way to a complete one. But a complete rupture is where you've had a complete rupture across that, across it, with a previous zone across that scar line, or it may have extended past that scar line as well. Mm-hmm. And then there'll be different stages of what happens to the baby. What is the biggest issue is the baby can then come into the abdominal cavity. And, and obviously we've got a lot of bleeding that happens at that point because we've got internal bleeding and baby can have a lot of problems with the placenta potentially coming away, oxygen levels, lots of different things that can go on at that point. And those partial ruptures, they can be missed and discovered later or just not even noticed and the birth actually still occurs. Yeah, and they may have been just a natural healing process of, of the uterus as well. Do we know how many uterine ruptures are complete versus partial percentage well it depends if they've looked at the numbers i think in enos they didn't bother looking at partial ruptures they only looked at complete so really it depends on who's doing the study and what their what their parameters are so then so one of the risks of vbac is is uterine rupture what are the others there has been some studies coming out recently that have looked at and and state that there are higher third degree perineal tears women planning a VBAC but I would really have a bit of caution with that I don't look at it in in the book and that is because they don't state the birth position of women at that point and I think I think it's maybe a maybe a bit of an overreach to say that women who've had a previous cesarean are going to have a different type of perineum from everyone else and therefore this perineum is more likely to to tear, I actually think we need to look at what is happening during the birth that is more likely to increase that. And so what I do know when I when we did the, the VBAC survey is that the most common birthing position was lying flat on your back, legs and stirrup. And so as a midwife, I'm kind of like alert thinking, well, you know, that's probably impacting the, the type of tearing that you're having. So and if we I, look at physiology, it's the worst position to be in in terms of the pelvic outlet. So that's the 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 part of the pelvis where the baby comes out. You've got the least amount of room when your knees are out um, as opposed to your knees being in regardless of what position you're in. So stirrups, stirrup, when your legs are up in stirrups, automatically closes off the hole, the bone hole that your baby needs to come out of. I said bone hole there. Yes, I did say it because it is. It's a hole in the bone, in the <laughs> yeah. pelvis, bone hole. Go for it. That's the new pelvic outlet name. The other thing that's happening in that space is the pelvic floor is not in an optimized lengthening position either. And so that's what we're talking about with third degree tears into that muscle layer. It's the pelvic floor muscles that are, that are tearing. And so position is huge. The other thing that happens with people experiencing a vaginal birth after cesarean is their options are very limited in terms of what they can access you know when we really look at again like looking at those limitations around women having v-backs a lot of it is time limitations they are very closely monitored they're you know they're probably more inclined to have things like vaginal examinations um you know, and so i think that it's having a bigger impact which is why muscle. i didn't put it in the book because i just thought well you haven't told me all that information so but really if we're looking at v-back or risks of v-back that's that's kind of one that has been banded about recently and and mentioned but I just want more information before I start saying that that's an outcome Mm. I've got an incredible personal story to this it kind of um the story came up when you were talking about get yourself a student midwife for continuity when I was a student I cared for this woman that was choosing a VBAC and she had the most amazing vaginal birth and she had a third degree tear and this midwife I was working with turned to her and said afterwards I bet you wish you'd had another cesarean. And, you know, that in, when you were talking about the comments that people get, it came to me straight away. And she turned around to this woman and said, no, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done. And afterwards we talked about it and she said what that midwife wasn't seeing was the wound breakdown that I had after my cesarean and that how that ended up with me back in hospital and how I didn't breastfeed my baby because of that and my baby getting an infection and ended up in the NICU. You know, she just saw the tear and just, you know straight away assumed in that moment oh I wish you'd had a cesarean and it was as a as a student midwife it, and as a woman it, that comment it will never leave me because it was just so awful to hear that yeah. and I saw that in the HVAC study too because women would say that they there were some women that had a third degree tear at home and then went in to get it sutured up and then came home again and the attitudes they got at the hospital was like 
oh, you failed, you know? Like, you failed because you had to come in here and get this all sutured up. And the woman's like, I just birthed a baby through my vagina at home. Like, there's nothing. This is a blip. They saw that bit as a mere blip. Why do you judge me on that part? Because there's no failure here. I just came, I got it sutured, I got it cared for, and then I went home again. Is there um, a slight increased risk of postpartum hemorrhage or is that as in, is that as nuanced as the third-degree tear? Well, <laughs> that's interesting. And if you look in the book, you, I've got a table in there and what it shows you is that it just jumps all over the place. So when I do the comparisons between VBAC and an elective cesarean and an emergency cesarean, because really there's three outcomes that can happen and then it just kind of jumps all over the place. But often what has happened when research has been interpreted is that, remember when I was talking about you have this one cohort of group, group of women that plan a feedback, then you've got the group that plan um, an elective cesarean, then often the outcomes are then given just still in those two groups. But we know in that group of planning a VBAC, there'll be 30 to 40% of women, maybe more or less, who have an emergency cesarean. And their outcomes can be very different to if you've had a VBAC. But if they're put all together and then you only compare those who planned an elective cesarean compared to those who planned a VBAC and in that includes emergency cesarean, then that group looks like it's got worse outcomes. When you break it out into three different groups, so when you look at then at the outcome of VBAC, emergency cesarean and elective cesarean, VBAC did better in, in all the outcomes. Then it was elective and then it was an emergency. And we know that, like emergency cesarean does come with some added risks, but it's important to separate it out. And instead of saying, gosh, you shouldn't plan for a VBAC because you could end up with an emergency cesarean, it should be, let's plan for a VBAC and do everything we can to help you have a VBAC. So on that then... Because the risks of planning a VBAC are always really heavily focused on in when when care providers are discussing things with women. But what I very rarely see discussed is the risk of a repeat cesarean section. So when planning your next birth after a cesarean, you can either plan to aim for a vaginal birth or you can opt to have a repeat cesarean section. And I love what you said at the book launch yesterday that either of those decisions each of those women are just as deserving of continuity of midwifery care, regardless of the choice that you make for your next birth after cesarean, that even if you intend to have a repeat cesarean section, midwifery care will always see you fare better emotionally, socially, across all of the, you know, the wellness measures that you can imagine. So I certainly, I love that you, that women who are planning a repeat cesarean section after a previous cesarean section still will benefit from continuity of midwifery care regardless of what option they're aiming for. But so I guess it's important for women to understand that there are risks to to aiming for a vaginal birth after cesarean, but then there's risks to choosing a repeat cesarean section. So can you give us a bit of a breakdown as to what the risk factors are of repeat and multiple cesarean sections? Yeah, so the, the more cesareans that you have, then the more risk you've got of things like adhesions which can lead to pelvic pain and ongoing pelvic pain and that can even lead to uh, more painful periods and other complications there is a higher risk of of infections post-cesarean and and then placental abnormalities so placental adhesion abnormalities what I mean by that is things like the placenta actually adhering to the scar or having an abnormal adhering to the placental wall. So the more cesareans you have, you, you've got more chances of placenta accretia and other complications uh, that involves in that, which make it difficult for the placenta to come away, which then can increase bleeding after birth. And they're not really spoken about as much, but they're most certainly, you know, this is major abdominal surgery and you're going into the same place. And, you know, it is it, that those adhesions, people don't really talk about that pelvic pain that can happen to having repeat cesareans and they just get worse and worse. And I see this a lot in the work that I do around pelvic floor health. I think there's this huge misconception out there that it's vaginal birth that causes prolapse and that's the be all and end all. What I'm seeing in a lot of the internal release work I do is the effect of adhesions and a lot of the work that I do with women who have, you know, finished having their babies, you know, 40s and 50s, the back pain that they get, the pelvic pain that they get is is 
deeply connected to their pregnancy and postpartum, but also to their cesareans. And I do care for women who've only had cesareans who have prolapse. And if you look at Anna Crowell's work from the UK, who believes that prolapse is purely uh, around tension, um, this is where this, it, these adhesions come into play a lot because so her work is that, you know, where the adhesions are, there's scar tissue and that pulls organs out of place, out of alignment. And that's where you get your prolapse symptoms and, and pain. So I think, you know, there's this big misconception in our society that a cesarean is the easy way out. And I'm doing that with those speech marks because it's not and that it's going to protect us from all these issues, especially around the pelvis. Really, though, one of the things that gets missed as well is that once you've had that first VBAC, all your other VBACs, right, those those rates when we're looking when we're planning a VBAC and say it's about 60 to 70 percent. Once you've had that first feedback, your chance of having a B before your, your rates are 80% plus, regardless of model of care. And what that tells me is actually that's got nothing to do with the uterus, nothing to do with the uterus. That's all to do with the brain and that's all to do with confidence. And the woman knows that she can do it. If the woman has experienced and knows that her body is capable of having a back, and then it just has like a, a, a flow-on effect because everyone around her feels, oh, I hate the term, when they go, oh, she's proved her pelvis or she's proved that she can have a vaginal birth, then they, then they suddenly have more support for you for all your previous feedbacks, uh, all your subsequent feedbacks have much higher rates of doing them. And, um, you know, I kind of just always challenge people at that point, or what do you think is the most important organ at that point then? Because I don't think it's the uterus at that point. You know, we're really looking at the brain. The um, I think a really important thing for people to know here too is that, you know, there is that common misconception that you can only have a VBAC after one cesarean. <laughs> so I've got a chapter in the book. It was actually going to be just part of the evidence and then it ended up being a whole chapter, which was, uh, can I have a VBAC if? So there's, there's a whole bunch of different things in there that I look at the evidence for and that does include multiple cesarean and certainly yes the answer is yes you can have a VBAC if you have more than one cesarean and I really I do give the most uh, up-to-date evidence on that but what I do say to women is well it's not it's not easy though not from your part but from the support that you're going to get if we've got and we do have you know like a, an Australian rate of say about 11 to 12 percent Drop 10% if you're looking at more than one cesarean. It's just harder to get your support team. You know, like you just get more and more battles. It just turns into this constant battleground. So it just makes it hard. Like it's not as if you can't, and the research supports it. Even Mm. the American guidelines support it, but that hasn't trickled down Mm. to the healthcare workers. It really demonstrates that theme again, because if you're having to fight in labor, then what hormones are there? They're not the hormones that enable you or facilitate birth, which is oxytocin. You know, if you're fighting in your labor, that's adrenaline. That's that's not going to enable you to labor efficiently and effectively, really. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go for it. Yes. So what I'm hearing then, Hazel, is that there's very few women who could absolutely not plan a vaginal birth after cesarean section. Absolutely. And really um, the, the reasons why you would need a cesarean, other than you try and rupture, which we know is rare, the reasons why would be the reasons why anyone else would would need to. Mm-hmm. So if you've got, you know, like a placenta covering the whole cervix and, you know, you, you would then need to have one. And so there would be really the same, there should be, the same reasons that the other women would would need to have a, a staring for. We're just not very good in the healthcare system at negotiating. And certainly when I do training with midwives and I've designed, ACM got me to design a online CPD activity based on this, on, mm-hmm. on the book, which I did, was supporting women. And in that I, I, challenge, I challenge the midwives to look at what their biases are about VBAC, but also how to negotiate. And it's actually okay to negotiate it's actually good and it doesn't make you at risk of being reported you might be at risk of being bullied um, by your other midwives or, or managers but actually negotiation is part of that two way so if a woman says I don't want that cannula in then you go that's okay because actually we've got really skilled people here who can put cannulas in an emergency that's kind of what they do that's fine. I was an emergency nurse for years. Like, seriously, we used to do it when people are crashing and put in an emergency, uh, a cannula in a pregnant woman. They've got the most beautiful veins in the world. Like, seriously, we can do it at that point. You know, all those things that we you actually can negotiate, those fetal heart rate abnormalities, we can pick up with a Doppler. 
it's actually okay to negotiate. But midwives get very scared because it's such a penalised system that if they don't follow a guideline, they're going to get into trouble. And the same with doctors. They, they're so penalised as well. And they've got a very difficult structure because they're, they're bullied by their bosses. Mm. So, so I just yeah because I really want people yeah. listening to this to know that, that that they are allowed to negotiate they are allowed to have mm. choice they are allowed to say no and it's not just if you say no then you're going to be punished and you have to go and now birth at home if that's not what you want to do you know well, they get labeled as a difficult woman mm. yeah but it's a human right it's but we also know obstetric violence exists in Australia mm. you know we've got the first paper coming out on the first paper on obstetric violence in Australia. And Amazing. So we know it happens. Well, that's the issue, isn't it, is that women like, yeah, I wanted to have a VBAC, but everyone was frightened and the and nobody offered me the opportunity and then there's coercion. And so there's actually going to be published research that highlights this pervasive issue of obstetric violence. Yeah, across all, for all women as well. That's coming out of the BEST survey. So And it shows one in ten women experience of such a violence mm-hmm. um one in three experience birth trauma but one in ten actually have obstetric violence we've got a conversation article that's going to come out the same day we've got a whole media release it's going to be a big party i'm quite scared oh, yeah. <laughs> i'm scared we'll pop it you know we're going to get the word out there because this is the silent this is the silent endemic thing that's going through maternity care at the moment is obstetric violence and women keep getting silenced by people telling them that their baby and themselves are alive and so they should be happy yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's wrong. And so there's all this focus on preventing 22 in 10,000 uterine ruptures for women planning VBAC, yet we've completely forgotten to have a look at the fact that one in 10 women are the victims of obstetric violence in Australia. That's it. And, and one in three have birth trauma. It. And it's higher for these women that we're talking about today. Yeah. Double. So Hazel said double. Yeah. So yeah. of the women who've had cesarean. Yeah, two in three women were having um, experience okay. birth, trauma. birth trauma. And this should be the most empowering event of our whole lives yeah. and should lead us into motherhood, which is by far the hardest thing that any of us will do with with trust in our bodies and our minds ability and so many of us are getting robbed of that and it is it's criminal it is. so proud of you for not swearing just then be <laughs> thank you yeah um oh, what i didn't mention is hazel and i work together at western sydney university yeah. and we're currently working on a project COVID, the birth in the time of covid so oh, i've completely left that out i forget to tell people that kind of stuff yeah, that's a pretty cool study we're on. Um, yeah, so that and and then the best survey. Amazing. And B, I'm adding a word to your B-ism dictionary. Bone hole is now added to the B-ism dictionary. Bone hole should just be added to the dictionary just Bone in general. <laughs> Magic. Oh, my gosh. That was Birth After Caesarean with Dr. Hazel Keedle. And if you're on the mailing list, you get an opportunity to win her book. and to have access to all of the resources that we mentioned today in this episode. We will see you next week in episode eight. Bye. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, Bee, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>